0: Welcome to the Dog Dialogue by Southwest Dog Skills, your ultimate podcast for all things dog. I'm Matt Donovan, and I'll be your guide to the fascinating world of canine companionship. Whether you're a seasoned caregiver or a newbie, join us for expert insights, heartwarming stories, and the joy of being part of a dog-loving community. Together, we'll explore the deep connections we forge with our four-legged companions. Because when it comes to our canine friends, every bark, every wag, Every port tells a story. Let's embark on this awesome journey together. So on the episode today, we have the hugely knowledgeable and experienced in all things rescue and shelter, uh, Tom Candy. Tom, how are you doing?
1: Yeah, really good, thank
0: you. Good, good, good day. Yeah,
1: not too bad yet. Good,
0: good. So um, one of the things I'm really excited to talk about today is um, rescue, because to be completely honest and transparent, it's not an area in terms of how rescues work that I know a massive amount about. So it's going to be really interesting today to speak about maybe the process of rescue, what goes on day to day, what the rehoming process is like. If dogs need support, what support they're able to get in terms of behaviour support, which I know is your your specialty. So I like guests to um, introduce themselves a little bit. So Tom, can you give us sort of a a rundown of you and who you are and what you do?
1: Yeah, definitely. So yeah, uh, my name is Tom Candy. I'm a behaviourist and I work uh, full-time in shelter. So that is my bread and butter sort of day-to-day work. Um, I work currently as a senior training and behaviour advisor for the UK's largest uh, dog welfare organisation. So that involves looking after training and behaviour teams across seven sites uh, in the southwest of England. Alongside that, I'm a trustee for a sort of medium-sized rescue in South Wales, so supporting the the behaviour and welfare team there as well. Um, And then I work with multiple other shelters on different things. Um, I also run Simplifying Shelter Behaviour, which is a Facebook group and podcast um, looking at putting out training and behaviour advice for shelter workers and volunteers. I have a um, Bachelor of Science in Bio-Veterinary Science and then a Master's in Clinical Animal Behaviour from the University of Lincoln. And I did those uh, qualifications and then I went straight into working with uh, shelter dogs. And I'm a, an accredited clinical animal behaviorist and a certified shelter behavior specialist. Wow. So, you've got a lot going,
0: <laughs> a lot going on. <laughs> I mean, you, you know, you're talking about working full time, trusting a, a smaller organization, you know, supporting others as well. And I know before the recording, we were chatting about, you know, how, how busy life can be, especially this time of year. It, it, it sounds like you, you've got a full on life um, looking at, you know, doing all these different things.
1: Yeah, I've not slept since about twenty sixteen, I think.
0: <laughs> Brilliant. So, so day just as a running the teams that you're running across seven sites day to day. What does what does your your job look like? What do you, what do you do day to day? Yeah, so
1: like a lot of people, it's changed a lot during COVID. Um, just before, well, kind of during COVID as well, we had a bit of a restructure. So, like I said, we've got seven sites now, which is a lot. Um, so it's a, it's a mixture of supporting in person, so going to see the dogs, looking at how plans are progressing, looking at tweaking or changing things, as well as coaching staff to develop um, and upskill them. And then the other days where I'm not traveling is sort of the, the dreaded admin, but also supporting virtually, so we use a lot more of Teams um, to, you know, chat. To different people, because yeah, you know, there's quite a big different uh, distance between the sites that I'm looking after as well. So yeah, using sort of virtual consultations in the in the same way that we do with pet dogs as well, mm. um, and then reviewing videos again, looking at plans, kind of thinking about how we do things better, um, and that sort of stuff.
0: Wow, wow, and I think COVID's a really interesting topic because there's there's lots of conversations around. Obviously, lots of people got dogs through the pandemic because they were working from home it was a convenient time to get it and then obviously the realization potentially for some that they needed to go back to work or that the the time involved in looking after a dog was more than what they thought it was going to be what what does re, what do rescues look like at the moment in terms of comparison between before the pandemic and afterwards is are they as jam packed as we expect them to be is there difficulties in in actually being able to rehome what does it what does a typical shelter look like at the moment
1: yeah so it was really interesting because we kind of prepared for the worst with covid like you know there's this big pandemic and we thought the shelters are going to be full nobody's going to adopt we're not going to have any money coming in because people are worried about um, jobs Luckily, obviously, the the UK government came out with furlough, so I think a lot more people you know, were able to continue donations. And actually, for a lot of shelters, and particularly the ones that I'm involved with, the pandemic was really successful, which is quite strange. So a lot of people who maybe would have handed in their dogs before had a change of circumstance, so they didn't need to. So we weren't seeing a huge number of dogs come in. People, like you said, were kind of looking to get a dog. It became more apparent that, working from home was probably going to stay in a lot of roles so people took that opportunity to then go out and get a dog and we actually managed to rehome some dogs who you know had been waiting for for quite a while due to that change in situation so the kind of wave that we were expecting didn't really come during covid Obviously, post-COVID, we've got the fallout, like you said, lots of dogs who kind of weren't really going anywhere. So they've developed some sort of challenging behaviours or behaviours that don't really fit with the owner's lifestyle now. But also, we've had a cost-of-living crisis. So we've seen quite a big shift in dogs coming in and the reasons that they're coming in as well. You've frozen, so I don't know yeah, if no, you actually I'm still back. there or not. Okay. <laughs> no. <laughs> So we've seen quite a big shift in, in the dogs coming in and the reasons too. So for example, like I think I talked about this on a podcast recently, at one point, so I worked in Charter for six years before the pandemic and I don't think I, I maybe saw one St. Bernard in my whole time. Obviously we had them in the, within the organizations that I was working in, but sort of hands-on it was about one saint bernard and i'm pretty sure she was a crossbreed i was on the phone to a colleague a couple of months ago when we we're driving home from the center and i was like mm, within my region there's five saint bernards currently which was like crazy so oh. you know we're starting to see that cost of living coming in it's more expensive to insure more expensive to feed um so that's definitely one side of it and then the flip side of it is that um those dogs who were under socialized or they're struggling a bit with adapting to the life that's here now there's a lot of frustration as well i think for the dogs and for caregivers which has led to sort of more relinquishment um so we've definitely seen that increase and the other flip side is people aren't really thinking about getting dogs or they're thinking about it a lot more which is really good in some ways but it does mean you know, dogs that previously we would have rehomed really quickly are staying around for a little bit longer. Mm-hmm. And I can think of one dog in particular, um, George. Who's um sorry, he's not called George. Can you just edit that bit out about George? Yeah. Just because I've got two dogs of Bordeaux's uh, in Wales, and they're both really different. Yeah, hang on, I just put um seven fifteen edit. Yeah, that's fine. Sorry, Mark. No, that's fine. I did that the other day as well. It's only just because George, George. Isn't going to have a very happy outcome because he's not a very happy dog. Oh, okay. But the other dog to Bordeaux is fine. Right. Um, so, for example, we've got a dog to Bordeaux at the minute called Flump, who is really good with dogs, really good with people, like a really lovely boy who previously we would have had sort of cues out the door for because he's, he's pretty looks pretty pure, bred. You know, he's a gorgeous-looking dog to Bordeaux. But he hasn't really had any interest at all, um, which is a massive shift in what we were seeing before. So, there's the kind of combination of challenges in terms of funding, challenges in terms of people wanting to adopt dogs, and then a big impact in the dogs that were taken in and the type of dogs that were taken in is kind of leading to this perfect storm, which is creating a really, really tricky situation for shelters. And then, on top of that, we've obviously had the changes to the legislation around dangerous dogs with the addition of, of the XL bullies which added a constantly changing um, problem-solving task that none of us were really prepared for uh, to the mix, which which has made the sort of end of the year a bit of a challenge, really, because we've got until the 31st of December to kind of identify dogs, decide if organizations are going to rehome them, which is you know solely down to the organization and their policies, and then try and find homes for these dogs. And if we can't find homes, work out what we do with those dogs later. So definitely a bit of a perfect storm happening at the minute it, it really sounds it it really
0: does sound it. so pre-pandemic cost of living and all the factors that you've just mentioned typically a dog that came in that was just relinquished for you know it, it didn't really have any behavioral problems or anything like that no real challenges pretty pure looking What what average it's hard to say but what's the turnaround for that sort of dog is it fairly visit within weeks is it months you know and then what's the difference between pre-pandemic cost of living and and now
1: yeah so i would say most dogs you kind of look in two weeks if there's kind of no real concerns you don't really need to do much more further investigation either behaviourally or medically Mm. it takes a bit of time for those dogs to kind of come in and settle. and you've got to get them up on the website or contact somebody about the dog get them to come and meet the dog and then book in another day to go home so you're kind of working off about 10 days to 10 to 14 days nice. pre-pandemic nice. now i think it is could be quite similar for a lot of the dogs it's just the pool of dogs that 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 fall into that category is much much smaller and now we are seeing dogs who Either we need to understand better as a rescue, which means they've got to sp- stay a bit longer for us to kind of really understand their behaviours. They might require more behaviour modification so that they're more likely to be successful when we put them out into the home. And that's really important from the dog's point of view, but also potential adopters. Because what we don't want to do is we home out dogs who people are going to struggle with, and that then affects their perception of rescue as a whole. Because, as with all things... You know, we're using our experience to make decisions, but sometimes it is a bit of trial and error and you might place a dog and it might not be the right fit for whatever reason. And we always want people to realise that that's not necessarily their fault and there may be a different match which works better for them. And that's fine. Like that's still helping dogs who are in um, the care of rescues. So that matchmaking process has become a lot more difficult because you've got fewer people coming forward uh, to look at it so yeah we're definitely getting kind of longer stays past that two-week mark
0: and that matchmaking I suppose is is the real critical point isn't it the skill in whoever's role it is within the organization to look at the matchmaking you know the the information you're able to get from the potential adopters the the team that's working with the dog both you know behaviorally but potentially medically as well to make sure that they're getting all the information they need to be able to pass that on that that joined up working across the team within the the, the 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 shelters must be a real critical thing to get right.
1: Yeah, 100%. So the way that I kind of think about it and talk about it generally is p- building that picture for the dog. So dog comes in, if they're coming in with a previous owner, we want to try and get as much information as possible from that previous owner. And that in itself is a skill because you need that owner to feel sort of Confident, not judged, you know, comfortable. Often they are upset, which is better in a way, I think, because obviously we want to know that these dogs have been are coming from a home where this really is their last option. Um, so we're kind of getting that information from them, asking those probing questions to find out more. Because often, if you've got a form that says, you know, how is your dog with other dogs, they either put good or not good. And we need to know, well, what does that look like? What types of dogs might they prefer? If they're not good with dogs, is that all dogs? Is that at a distance? Trying to gather that information. Because once the dog comes into kennels, they're often quite different. And that can be a positive and a negative. So sometimes we don't see behaviours which are actually problematic in the home. Um, or sometimes we see different behaviours that are problematic in the shelter, but don't happen in the home. So we're trying to build this picture of a dog to give us the kind of best information. And we've seen quite a big shift in probably the last, I was going to say 10 years and then realized how long I've actually been working in shelter. So probably the last 20 years (laughs) where we've moved away from kind of the, um, what we would call like situational based testing. And the, the obvious one that comes to mind is like the assessor hand. So a plastic hand that you kind of poke the dog's food bowl with and see what the dog does and it's a lot more about um building that day-to-day observations and using that as your information and then like you said what we've got to do is then take that and match that to information that we get from somebody else about whether those dogs and those people are going to fit together so you're totally right the skill set comes back into it about then asking questions about what does the home look like because a quiet home to me and a quiet home to you might look very different Mm. but for that dog's individual needs it could be really important that we understand those differences Mm. and a big challenge in shelter is often perception like we've just talked about and a lot of people think shelter or rescue can be quite um, difficult to adopt from and there's a lot of barriers but what we want to do really is or what my view is that we should be doing as an industry is trying to break down those barriers and moving away from having those sort of restrictive adoption criteria, like you must have six foot fences, you must have a garden um, and looking much more about what are the needs of the individual dogs and what is that home, a, that home able to offer. Because when I was working at, at you know one specific centre, I was out of the house for eight hours a day and my dog was at home getting a break at lunchtime but spent most of the time at home. But I had a camera on her for the first few, well, probably the first year I had her. And every time I looked at the camera, she was just asleep in sl- a slightly different position on the sofa. Yeah. You know, so for her, that really wasn't an issue because when I was around, you know, we had a really great time. We did big adventures and we go away in the camper van. So as a, if we look at her life as an entirety, it's pretty well fulfilled, but some people might have on paper said, oh no, Tom's not a good home for that dog because she's a, Finnish lap and collie type dog who really needs an active lifestyle and won't cope with being alone. But as an individual, she, I'm pretty sure she like waves me out because she wants sleep. <laughs> <laughs> just, just just, close the
0: door quietly as you go out. Yeah,
1: where's my Kong? <laughs>
0: <laughs> Don't make too much noise. I, I think that's that's so... Inco- and Like I said at the very beginning, you know, my, my, and I'm completely honest in this, my knowledge of rescue isn't huge. So to hear the fact that there is a movement to let's not just not have a blanket approach to how we assess or how we rehome, but let's look at the individual needs of the dog and go, right, what does that dog really need in their life? And let's find suitable adopters for that. Rather, you know, we, we had a, a terrible experience um, before we got Cody, our, our last Labrador. Um, we, we approached a, a, an independent rescue organization um, and, the, and they turned us down because um, Tamara and I weren't married. Um, because that that wasn't... And that was the reason, you know, we were we were going to be spending time with them. You know, we talked about the training that we did, etc. But the reason they turned us down to be able to adopt any dog is because Tam and I weren't married. Um, and it was just mm-hmm. such a... Cl- you know, because we did, we weren't providing... The justification was we weren't going to be providing a stable um, home life for the dog.
1: I'll have to add that to my list. I've, I've not heard that before.
0: And it was just... And you just walk away, going, "Well, that's a barrier that doesn't even need to be there." You're, you're, you know, and, and this was, this was, 15 years ago. This was a, you know, a long time ago. And it's so good to hear that things have moved on now. And and you know, within your organisation, and I can, and I'm sure within many organisations, there is a movement now to let's really understand the individual needs, the individual nuances of that dog. What do they really need to? What's their care going to look like? and then find the right people that they're going to provide that. That's, that's fantastic.
1: Yeah. I think we've still got a way to go, um, but it's definitely a move in the right direction. And we often talk about sort of the good enough home and that's maybe what we should be aiming for because yeah. And, and the classic example is, you know, somebody hands their dog over and they say, Oh, they need to live on a farm, a quiet farm in the country because you know they're reactive to other dogs or whatever. Well, they're, they're the haystack homes, you know, they're the needle in the haystack. Yes, one might come along, but there definitely isn't enough of them for the dogs that, that we've got. So you've got to look at that good enough home, and that's where that co- approach comes from. And the other thing that you've got to consider, and but it's it's really interesting, but I think there's a lot more um, comparisons we've got now compared to what we had previously, because essentially what you're doing is Tinder for dogs, You're putting a photo online and you're hoping that somebody likes that photo and rings you up about that dog. And the skill in rehoming is saying, you know, we've had 50 applications for Coco the Labrador because it's a lot, you know, a beautiful Labrador, but some of those people might have put, they're just looking for a medium dog, but they've seen Coco because, you know, Labradors are like the most, at one point, I think it's cockapoos now, but at one point, we're the most popular dogs in the UK. (laughs) And you look at that application and you say, oh, well, this Collie Cross Labrador that we've got fits well with them. And then you're proactive in your approach to rehoming where you're saying to these people, sorry that you've missed out on Coco, but would you like to meet Oscar the Collie Cross? And matching that way, because if you sit and wait, the the underdogs or the dogs who get less interest or might have some challenging behaviours, which on paper don't sound very great, are always going to be pipped to the post by the more desirable dogs, um, which is challenging. And another shift that we're seeing at the minute is actually a move away from people ringing up and saying, I'm interested in adopting Kobe, and actually just applying for a dog, so applying to an organisation, and then that organisation reviewing their information, looking at what options they've got in terms of dogs and and matching them together. Um, And a really nice example of that is... Um, if you watch The Dog House on right. Channel 4, which is Wood Green, which is a fantastic organization. I've done a lot of work around this stuff. Um, and that's some behind the scenes um, things, you know, where they have those sort of conversations. Um, and you can see kind of the backwards working of, of what Rescue looks like. Absolutely, um, and My friend Sue is on that and she does an absolutely amazing job.
0: It, it it's it looks fantastic the the way they you know the discussions they have and you know these people look like or this dog looks like they suit these people and bringing out dogs for them to see rather than like you said seeing a that that tinder approach of seeing that one dog online and applying for that one dog it's it's people opening their themselves opening their hearts their homes to be able to go actually i feel i'm in a really good place to take on a rescue dog Let's see what the organisation thinks is a is a good fit for us, um, and I think that's a such a good way to be.
1: Yeah, hundred percent. And it and it is a sales pitch ultimately, because yeah, if your heart's set on a Labrador, or what we hear sometimes, if if you've got a site that allows people to walk around, is you know i have fallen in love with that dog through the glass. We get that quite often, or you know we've fallen in love with that dog from their picture online, and actually trying to get those people to see that this dog might be better suited for them is quite a challenge. Right. But then often when they meet the dog and definitely if they do get to take that dog home, they, you know, it just clicks so much better because there's thought that has gone into the rehoming versus somewhere like the States, which is still very, you know, because of the volume of dogs, it's still very much turn up at two o'clock on a Thursday. And if you like a dog, they're in the car by half two. And, you know, wow. every, you know, jobs gooden.
0: good. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so,
0: I mean, I'm interested in the, in the process um, of you know someone, and, and let's take it because obviously there are multiple entry points for dogs coming to you. There's stray dogs, there's surrendered dogs, there's you know dogs that have maybe been. I, I take it there's dogs that maybe have been removed from homes as well by by dog wardens and that sort of thing. But
1: if uh, we... sorry, go on. Oh no, I was just going to say yeah. So that tends to be sort of the main flow of dogs is. Um, Yeah, dogs who are handed over privately, so where an owner has identified an issue, and that could be they're moving house, their job has changed, they can't afford vet care for a specific veterinary issue, or the dog has a potential problem behaviour which isn't fitting with their lifestyle, and they take their dog to a rescue organisation to rehome. Then you've got the other side, like you said, with the stray dogs, where they're dogs who have ended up in council pounds, where they've got seven days... um, Legally, the council has to keep the dog for seven days to allow time to find any potential adopter. Uh, Sorry, not adopter, previous owner. If the owner doesn't come forward, then the council legally can destroy the dog. Most councils now, and it's got way, way better um, over the last few decades, most councils now have relationships with rescue organisations where those dogs then transfer into the care of the rescue for rehoming. So we've seen a massive decrease in euthanasia from sort of stray dogs, which is amazing. Absolutely Absolutely fantastic. Then you get some dogs who are um, coming from other organizations. They might have different challenges. Could be that they're from abroad or somewhere like that. Um, Islands, different places where the dog population is much different and they come into organizations as well. But they're kind of the three main sources of dogs other organizations will have slightly different things so obviously rspca take the dogs that like you said where there's kind of concerns around um how that dog's been looked after or the welfare of that dog and then they're kept in the care of that organization until an outcome decided which might be rehoming or you know going back to the owner or whatever happens
0: so a dog comes into your organization for whatever reason and what what does that process of bringing the dog in assessment what does that look like what sort of teams are involved because i can imagine it's sort of multidisciplinary in terms of different people being involved and obviously um a big part from what i see from the outside is volunteers in in some organizations as well so what you know give people an idea of if a dog comes in what what is that process for them what does it look like
1: yeah so generally speaking Dogs will come in and they'll have a few days of sort of isolation. So, but they're still leaving their kennel. In most organizations, they can still leave their kennel, but they go into kind of one specific area just in case there is any kind of diseases or if we're not sure about their vaccination status, just to protect them, but also protect the other dogs on site. So, we're just giving any time for anything to kind of show up. During that period, we're also starting to get to know the dog and they can have their initial veterinary check. Again, just to make sure that there's no obvious signs of anything going wrong, also means the dogs can be weighed so you can more accurately work out the food that they should be on. And that's really important as well from an insurance point of view when we then go to rehome these dogs that they've had kind of multiple veterinary assessments um, for, the, for the insurance company to support them. During that period as well, what most organisations will do is like observational assessment, like we've said. So you're going in that kennel with that dog anyway. So you probably want to be writing down the information um, that you're seeing. And just getting to know the dog, letting them settle. We're going to try and keep staff consistent in that block during that time where possible because there's a lot of change already happened for that dog. They've either been taken out of a home that they knew really, really well with their secure bases, so those owners that they feel confident around, or like you said, they've been picked up stray and they might have been in a different kennels. There's a lot of change happening. So we're trying to keep what we can consistent. After that first initial period, which will differ for organisations, it could be three days, five days, seven days. They tend to be the kind of main, main gaps. So after, say, five days, that dog will then have an assessment, and then if everything's happy, it can go out for rehoming. That tends to be the process if dogs are coming into a kennel environment. We're also seeing a bit of a shift now where dogs might go straight to foster, So again, they'll still be kind of kept in in quieter areas until we know about their vaccine status and everything, but they're living in a home. And then the other approach we can take to shelter, which is, I think, going to become a lot more popular with the pressure that rescues are under, is rehoming the dog from their initial home. So if somebody has a dog that they need to hand over because of a change in circumstance, so they know that their leaving hours are going to change in two months' time when their job changes, or they know they need to find a new place to live, but they're not moving out straight away, something like that. We can advertise the dog through the rescue and rehome that dog directly from that owner um, to a new owner, but we're supporting the dog through the rescue. So they've still got all of the benefits of coming into rescue without having to be on-site in kennels. So for dogs who are a bit more worried or unsure, or again, where the owner knows that they've got a period of time, that can reduce stress for that dog, but then it also opens up a space for another dog who might not have that option. So like we said, a dog who is at the end of their seven days and has to have a kennel space, doing Homes Direct, which is what some organisations call it, or Homestay, frees up that kennel space while still supporting that owner in need. So it's a much more of a kind of community-based approach where you can help a higher volume of dogs without needing to build more kennels.
0: Mm. I suppose each each element has got its pros and cons. Um, You know, instantly, my thought with with the the home, you know, the homestay was that prolonged process for the for the guardian of that. You know, knowing that the dog at some point is going to go, but not knowing quite when. Whereas, I suppose if you're if you're taking the dog straight into shelter, if there is a if there is a space, there's there there's that emo- emotional cut off. But then I suppose the the almost grieving process afterwards of having to go through the process of, of giving the dog up for some I suppose that the reasons for giving dogs up are so wide ranging, um, where you know it I can. Yeah, just thinking about that—the the differences in each one—and obviously from the dog's point of view, the lower stress levels in being in the home until they they go and live in their new house. That that's going to have an impact on the ability to support them in being themselves, and because they're not going through that stress period of being in shelter, you can, you can see the nuances and the pros and cons of each individual one, can't you? Being being really interesting.
1: Definitely, and I don't think. I don't think we'd ever get to the point where we only have the one route because like you said, there's pros and cons to all of them. If, If you've got an emergency, a kennel is a kennel. You know, any dog can go into a kennel. They might not like it very much, but they're contained in a safe space and you can formulate a plan from there. So that kind of emergency reaction force, kennels probably is the best. Some organizations have absolutely fantastic foster carers who drop everything day and night. But you're then reliant on volunteers, which people are absolutely amazing, and most organisations could not run without volunteers anyway. But it does put a slightly different pressure on things. Um, the so Hope Rescue Wales, who I'm a trustee for, you know, we used to be a foster-based rescue uh, ten years ago when I started. Well, again, it's probably actually way more than ten years <laughs> now. But um, when I started with Hope, we were a foster-based rescue. They've got an absolutely fantastic foster network, which has continued. So it's actually about a 50-50 split of dogs in foster versus dogs in kennels. But they still got to the point where needing their own kennels was important. Because what you generally find is even foster-based rescues will have some form of emergency kenneling. So they might link up with a private boarding kennels, Um, which then adds different pressures again, because during school holidays where the kennels are really busy with um, private clients, sometimes, you, know, you get reduced emergency kennel options. So you've got this really kind of important interplay. What's a really interesting factor from our point of view in, in training and behavior is if you've got a dog who's able to stay in the home for slightly longer with the potential adopters, you've potentially got the opportunity to give advice around supporting that dog to make the dog more, more successful in their next home. So, for example, if an owner rings up and says, I need to hand my dog over for X reason, and they're not very good in the vet. We can talk that owner through doing muzzle training with the dog. So by the time they come in, they're comfortable wearing the muzzle, and it's one thing to remove the stress of seeing the vet. Whereas if the dogs come in straight into kennels, it's it's the staff at the centre that's going to need to do that muzzle training, which is a time pressure for them. The dogs are possibly not learning as well because they're a bit more stressed. So, like as you said, there's kind of advantages to everything, and it's about I think having a almost a um all-encompassing approach so that we can look at the dog as an individual and then work out which route is probably going to work best for them mm.
0: it's i mean it it's really shifting my my thought process in the back of my head about what went, went on in rescue to be honest and and it's fantastic to hear that there is so much individuality for both the the person you know giving up the dog and then also the dog themselves when they're you know trying to work out what what rehoming process is best again for them, given the, given the situation? So, so a dogs let's say a, a dogs come into shelter and it's identified that they need some behavioural support. Is there a, a a team ready to descend and 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 off they go? It, it, how do, you know what what sort of provision is there for them? For and I know obviously you know you run in the teams. This is your area of expertise, but typically for your organisation and the organisations you support, what does that that training support look like
1: yeah so so where i work at the minute we're really lucky to have um training and behavior teams at all centers so um that's normally made up of sort of a behaviorist level person and then some trainers and again the expectation is kind of on all of the staff to do the training but those people are there to work with some of the more trickier dogs or to support the staff working with their dogs um And it just means that the array of dogs that can be supported by that organization is much wider because we can work on a dog whilst they're in this day, which, as I said earlier, is going to make that rehoming more successful. It happens as well as smaller organizations. And what generally tends to happen is they maybe have a partnership with an external trainer who's able to kind of come in, give them some plans to work on very much like you would do with, you know, an owner with a dog who's struggling. Um, so there's kind of ways around it, but definitely kind of the way forward, I think, is working towards a point where, you know, most rescues have their own behaviour staff who are working with the dogs and, so, and supporting other staff, volunteers, upskilling people, um, and even, you know, working with the adopters for that transition period, because that's obviously the, the most tricky part often is is then getting the dog out of kennels into a home successfully. So that's the things. And, you know, there's pros and cons to it. For some things, being in kennels is actually quite useful. Uh, So, you know, there's quite predictable often. You know, you've got reduced, um, you've got good control over the environment in some ways. So, you know, if you're doing dog-to-dog reactivity work, you have a supply of dogs who can be walked at a distance by another member of staff. That's a little bit more controlled than if you were trying to do dog to dog work in a park with a random stranger's dog that you haven't got that control over. So, some elements of training and behavior can be made easier in shelter. The flip side of that is it's generally not an environment that dogs do very well in. It's quite a busy environment, there's lots of smells, lots of sounds, and ultimately the biggest pressure is time. So, the dogs are maybe coming out of their kennels an hour a day, depending on the staffing. Levels of that centre and the needs of the dogs and how many animals they've got on site. So the time that you can spend training is less, but the dogs are also not always in the best mindset to learn, which can then make things take a little bit longer. Um, so yeah, there's kind of pros and cons to to doing the training in in shelter as well.
0: And I suppose for, for people outside of your organisation, things like your Facebook group, your podcast, that Simplifying Shelter Behaviour is is a, is a free resource for people to go back to and, and, and learn things. I know recently I listened to your brilliant episode with Sarah Fisher and Rachel Landy more about how an animal-centred education in is supportive for those dogs in shelter. And that's a really great episode for people to go back and listen to. And I think, you know, I suppose, when you're looking at things like funding for training for volunteers, that must be difficult training for staff, you know, no matter whether they're part of the care team or part of the training staff. So having those resources available must, it must be a real lifeline for those other organisations as well.
1: Yeah. And that's what kind of prompted me to, to do it really was that a lot of people kind of do give their time to rescues, which is really great. And I think a lot of the time we talk about kind of that, education versus practical skill piece and I think there's a you know my my personal view is you need both it doesn't matter where your education comes from you know but you need the knowledge and you need the practical skills so if you are starting out or you are looking to build skills shelter is a great place to go because you're in the thick of it and you'll probably see different problem behaviors than you see out and about um which i'll come back to in a second Uh but Yeah, that's kind of why I started to put out um, some some of my stuff in simplifying shelter behavior because it is almost a different world, and there's training and behavior, and then there's shelter training and behavior, and just with shelter medicine, which is kind of the veterinary umbrella of, you know, this is top level treatment, but you have X amount of money, so this is the plan that we're going to take. You know, there's changes to shelter medicine that in standard veterinary practice would be different. And that's the same with training and behavior. You know, sometimes our options are more limited, so we might have to cut corners as long as it doesn't obviously endanger staff or compromise the dog's welfare, but we might approach things slightly differently. So trying to get some shelter specific information out there was really important to me. Um, other organizations do a really good job of it. And the one that jumps to mind straight up straight away is the associations of dogs and cats homes. So that is a UK organization that, um, similar to like the animal behavior and training council it's almost like a self uh, self a voluntary sign up organization for um rescues in the uk they set kind of a minimum standards to try and support rescues to achieve the best welfare for their dogs and they do a lot of sort of free webinars as well uh, all about shelter stuff so med- shelter medicine behavior and different things like that so that's another really good resource for people to look at
0: Amazing. So if we're going back to our, our process of the dog then having some behavioral support, they're getting their, their one hour a day potentially out of their kennel. Some of that time is going to be obviously meeting their 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 basic need. And then some of that time is potentially going to be training with either a dedicated member of the training team or basically trying to get to the point where there's anybody that encounters that dog it has the ability to, to support that dog moving forward in some way, shape or form. It'd be interesting to talk about the medical, you know, you've raised an interesting point there about the medical side of it and what goes on for a dog that might come in in with some medical conditions Um, and and the changes that might be made from general day-to-day medical practice to what goes on in shelter. So as an example, can you provide us with an example of a a difference or or just talk generally about what, what goes on and what the differences are in that medical side of things?
1: Yeah, definitely. So, you know, a big one comes down to cost and that's going to vary depending on um, the organization and what funding they've got available. But one sort of semi-extreme example of that is if a dog comes in and they've got a broken leg, in a home environment, quite often they might, you know, put an external, I'm not a vet, I'll just say that now, but they might put like an external fixator on or something to hold those bones together while they heal. But in that that can be quite expensive if it's quite specific sort of orthopedic referral surgery. So in shelter, what they might look to do if funds are reduced is just amputate the leg. Right. So when we look at long-term outcomes, the dog doesn't have to be euthanized. Most dogs live perfectly well with free legs, um, albeit you know, slight changes that are needed. But if the dog was in a home and it was insured and the money was there and the options for recovery were there you'd probably opt for saving the leg and some organizations do that so I hope that I'm a trustee for you know it's not necessarily about which procedure is going to be cheapest it's which procedure is going to offer the best quality of life for the dog but like I said that's going to differ rescue to rescue you've then got the kind of added difficulty of how realistic treatments are so again you might have a dog who doesn't have a great relationship with staff because he's quite new in, who needs eye drops six times a day. Well, we might not be looking at doing those eye drops, but there's a different type of medication that you can just give and it lasts a week. You know, best practice would be to do the drops every day, but in shelter environment, you might opt to do the um, sort of the best that you can offer basically that's kind of what we're working towards so it just sparks a lot more conversation so a vet in private practice might just be able to go you know bish bash bosh that's what we're doing with the dog whereas as you said earlier there's a lot more kind of jigsaw piece puzzles that need pulling together in terms of input from different members of staff you know people who are handling the dog day-to-day and what they think is realistic what finance the organization's got available how the dog is in a kennel because if we go back to our dog with a broken leg we don't necessarily want to be doing really extreme orthopedic surgery on a dog who is struggling to settle in the kennel so we might need to look to pop them into foster before they can have that operation so the challenge you know the pieces are just a bit further spread apart when you're in a rescue versus if you've got a dog who's just in a home and they break their leg on a walk
0: and i suppose you know the If we look at that extreme case of potential amputation, it's actually the recovery rate from having the leg in a splint and you know the the support that's needed post operation care that we would be able to potentially do in our homes. It's that's not the shelter is not the environment to be able to to do those you know bed rest calm you know those sort of things that the dog needs. So the amputation actually. Gives the dog the best outcome because it, it it's it's a rebalance of the body, but actually the impact is potentially not as big as if a fe- if you try to do it mend a broken leg and it failed and then all the other things that go along with it because the environment wasn't right for the recovery. So I can understand how that that thinking comes in of do least harm, have the best outcome. In the long term not just the short term of well if we if we do do the amputation you know like i said as an extreme example does that get that dog fitter well again quicker to get them back out of the shelter environment back into a lovely home where they can have a a life of you know enjoyment and fulfillment that we want all dogs to have whereas if you went for the fix of the for the broken leg in a shelter is that going to be the, the best outcome long term for that dog to to be able to cope.
1: Yeah, exactly. So you know, it's very <laughs> much about kind of putting all those pieces together, really. And <laughs> in the slightly uh, dark sense of humor side of things that you tend to develop in your work in rescue, um, everybody loves a tripod. <laughs> so, in terms of rehoming success, you're also probably more likely to get home for that dog because people really like a sob story and the fact that the dog's lost its leg is great. That isn't obviously me saying that if you're struggling to rehome a dog, we should just take the leg off. Um, (laughs) But, you know, you kind of need these. (laughs) These are the sort of thoughts that happen in your head when you've worked in shelter for 15 years. (laughs) I was somewhere um on, on the
0: weekend and we saw a three-legged dog and, and your brain is oh bless you know look at that dog and you think about you know the story how that happened it evokes an emotional response in you when you when you see that 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 three-legged dog so i think you're right there is a, an emotional draw to to those dogs that are and you and you see you know uh, social media posts all the time of dogs that might be slightly disfigured or you know the dogs that haven't been seen by anybody for such a long period of time or that they've been in shelter for so long and and it it is that emotional link that you create with that animal that makes you actually think well yeah why should we not look at dogs that have maybe got discolored eyes or the nose isn't quite straight or whatever and we and we have this picture perfect image of what dogs should look like you know, even if we go back to you know, we, we we really like our ridgeback breeds. And and you know, not so long ago, ridge ridgeless ridgebacks were were discarded because they weren't aesthetically pleasing and we put so much on the eye. Um, you know, why should we not consider these dogs that have got a a, a different outcome or a different look about them, I suppose. But you know, we're drawn to a like I said, probably drawn to a certain look. So the dogs have then been home you've matched them well and you found them this perfect place then or you know as perfect as possible place for them to go to what's the what's the process then once they they or what's the support look like once they have found that home
1: yeah so again it depends on the resources available to the organization but generally they get some form of follow-up support so nearly all shelters or rescues, and definitely the rescues that people should be adopting from, will offer lifetime support for the dog. Now, that might not be specifically training and behaviour advice if they don't have training and behaviour people um, on board, but you know it'll mean if your situation does change or you are really struggling, they're always there to take that dog back so that you don't end up with a dog who's then in a different part of the system having already gone through a uh, rescue. So that's kind of your bare minimum. And then after that, generally you'll get a phone call just to see how that dog's settling in, make sure there's kind of nothing obvious going on that little tweaks could make quite a big difference. Because mm-hmm. what we want to try and do is identify problems early doors and you know put things into place that stop that challenge actually becoming a problem or something that somebody's struggling with. And that's one of the biggest challenges with working in in rescue training and behavior is often people either haven't really signed up for the challenge that they're facing because we might not have seen it in kennels. So we might not know that the dog is going to go home and howl at 11 o'clock at night, every night or whatever, because we're not there to see it. So we, but those people might not know either. So it's a very different paradigm to somebody who's calling you to say, you know, I've had this dog for six years and they bark at other dogs. Can you help me? The person who's taken the dog home two weeks ago, who's just found out that their dog barks at other dogs, there's a different relationship. They obviously still care and they want to make a difference, but you might have a different level of buy-in, which is something that you have to consider when you're working with these types of dogs. So we want to identify any concerns or queries quite early so that we can either signpost them to uh, reputable trainers and behaviourists that can support the dogs, Or if you've got in-house services, you know, support the owner yourself to try and make things successful in that home. Um, And like I said, you know, the homes aren't always going to be perfect. And sometimes we can make small tweaks that are going to improve things, even, you know, putting up a baby gate. Uh, So that's something with my dog. You know, she likes to eat letters as they come through the letterbox, which is somewhat terrifying for the postcard, uh, for the postman. I could do a lot of training around it. I'm pretty lazy when I'm at home, so I've just got a stair gate, which you now can't get to the postman. So we can make little changes like that while we support the dog settling in, give them better behaviours to do, um, or think about addressing those emotions. So supporting kind of early on is really important. But like I said, hopefully the organisation is there for the life of the dog, so if anything does change, they can still receive support um, in keeping that dog in the home.
0: Brilliant. It's been really fascinating learning more about the world of rescue and tom thank you so much for for giving your time just a, a reminder that your your Facebook group uh, sorry Facebook page and your podcast is simplifying shelter behavior uh, yeah, that's it. All free, free resources, um, free training material as well. And, and I've had conversations with Tom, he's a really giving, sharing person. So um, I know that people that go in and, and, and access those will find those really useful. Just two quick questions to finish. One being from a, a potential adopter's point of view. And one being uh, from someone who is struggling and has a thought in mind of potentially surrendering a dog to a shelter. What would it in I so take them as two separate questions? What would your your top tips be for? Let's go first of all with someone who's thinking of taking on a a dog that's in currently in rescue.
1: So just think about kind of your setup and if you're applying to a rescue look at you know look at local rescues first because that's going to give you the best opportunity to visit multiple times to meet a dog and get to know them before they come into your home so if you can stay local you know that does offer more opportunities think of it a bit like a job interview for them as well so you want to ask questions around the support what vet you know what Um, vet assessment has the dog had before they come to you is there anything like most rescue organizations will offer like four weeks free insurance that gives you a bit of time to get yourself sorted before you take the dog home uh, after you take the dog home to get insurance and things like that in place so kind of look at what package they offer like I said earlier make sure that you've got the lifetime support because we don't always know what's going to happen and knowing sort of where your dog can go if anything does go wrong is, is quite an important factor have a conversation with them as well and like i said if they've got kind of barrier barriers to adoption and they've got blanket policies that don't fit in with your life don't be discouraged so don't go straight out and buy a puppy because um other organizations will rehome to you it might just take a little bit longer and thinking about your individual situation as well and having realistic expectations so if you have a home with two children and a cat There is a dog out there for you, but it'll take a little bit longer than a single person who's, you know, just lives by themselves and is home all day because we just need to meet those needs for both of you because we want the children to be safe. We want the cat to be safe and we want you to have a great time with your new dog. So just think about your, um, Set up and, and be realistic about time scales. You're probably not going to end up getting a dog next week. So that's kind of the main advice around adopting and then thinking about how you're going to set up your home. Look at some of the puppy guidance. You know, it's a sort of similar thing, even if it's an adult dog. I think we often forget about that. And then the slight caveat to that is, obviously I said about not going out and getting a puppy, but if you think that's going to be better for you, rescues have puppies as well. So you can still look at rescues before you go out and get a puppy and then if not just make sure you go into an ethical breeder who still offers similar support to rescue so that later down the line that dog or its siblings don't end up in in rescue cuz it's come from a proper breeder in cool. terms of people you know if you're looking at handing over your dog the first thing is just make sure that it is the last option for you. So there is a lot of support out there in the minute, particularly with the cost of living crisis and the other challenges. Lots of organizations are supporting people with veterinary costs. Lots are offering food banks for pets. Um, You know, short-term boarding, some organizations do. Dogs Trust offer um, free training and behavior support. So if you're struggling with a problem behavior and you're struggling to know where to go, you can speak to them and they'll offer you some support. If you've kind of exhausted all options and you think that handing your dog over is the right thing to do, think about how you can provide that rescue with as much information as possible about your dog. And that's going to give your dog the best chance of success when they move to their new home and asking similar questions as well. So you want to make sure that your dog is going to a reputable rescue So ask them about the process. What does it look like? How long do they think the dog will stay in the kennels? Um, Where do they tend to replace dogs? They'll probably won't tell you about where the dog's gone because of GDPR and things like that. But you can just gain an idea of kind of the type of homes that they're looking for and how successful they are at doing it because you want to feel kind of good about the situation as well. Um, and don't put too much, too much pressure on yourself about about it being a bad outcome. You know, dogs live for a long time. Sometimes our situations change and we don't want to do it, but that's the right option for the dog and yourself. Um so you've just kind of got to make the most of that situation by trying to support the dog as much as possible with with that move.
0: Brilliant that's so useful tom a really nice way to finish thank you very much um, tom i'd love to have you back um and talk about another topic within within rescue it's been fascinating uh, what you shared with us so far so just a reminder everybody you can go and see tom's um work that he does on his facebook group simplifying shelter behavior and see his podcast too which is on spotify, spotify. Yep. yeah
1: just spotify at the minute
0: go and find it on spotify um Look forward to bringing you another episode soon and um, hope you enjoyed this episode of the Dog Dialogue. Thanks very much, everybody.
1: Thanks.